A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored Le'ili Nishmas, Rameshe Shalom Ben Rabiakov, whose yard site was just uh, yesterday, two days ago, Chaf El, who is very close and related to Maran Rabbi Yisrael Meisha Dushinsky, the Gaivet of the Eid Haredes in Yerushalayim, and the only child of Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Dushinsky, both of whom are the subject of today's episode. So I want to start off by, you know, it's coming up Sukkot in a couple of weeks, and one of the more popular walking tours that I have the privilege of bringing people around Yerushalayim. And if you're going to be your Sukkot, you might want to be in touch with me, or any other time of the year, you might want to be in touch with me about doing one of these tours. But one of the more popular ones is around the center of town. We explore the history and the, the Yafo, Machane Yehuda, Shuk, that whole general vicinity of, uh, of the area. And it always comes as a surprise to the group when we go down Rehov Yafo to the old Sharei Tzedek building. And um, which is today the uh, Israeli TV broadcasting or whatever, and um, on the property of of the old Shari Tzedek building behind it, down by the Agrippa side, so there's this entrance that no one no one ever noticed. It's a tiny little place of a cemetery, a forgotten cemetery, smack in the middle of this urban environment, and they're doing construction there, so it's always noisy and dusty, and you can. Literally miss it. It's this tiny little place, and it's a cemetery. And you go in there, and there's a few celebrity kvarim there. There's Dr. Moshe Valach, the one who founded and built Shari Tzedek. And there's Rebichil Michal Schlesinger, the Rosh Hashiva and founder of Kol Taira. And then the main main famous people who are buried there is Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Dushinsky, uh, who's, who's the main story that we're going to talk about today, and his son, his only child, Rabbi Shromay who succeeded his father in his positions, in all of his positions, actually. Um, so, it's uh, they're tucked away in the middle of nowhere, and, um, you know, overlooked, and not only that, but uh, Maharitz Dushinsky, as he was known, Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Dushinsky, he passed away on Erev Sukkis, uh, the busiest day of the year in Yerushalayim. So it's, in a forgotten cemetery on Erev Sukkis, 
and uh, unfortunately, not enough people go visit his his gravesite and hear about this great man, real leader, um, at a unique time in history. And it's a bit of an irony and symbolism that he is in this forgotten cemetery because um, he's someone who's who's kind of tried to walk a tightrope and has been forgotten by by both sides to a certain extent. So here we're going to bring back a little bit of the memory and the important place in history that he uh, played at his time. So definitely um, you'll want to come along on one of those tours in that area, and I'm looking forward to taking you around. Um, but either way, the, the, what's even more interesting is that this little cemetery, is the reason that, that it exists over there, is because during the 1948 war, uh, their Harazesim was cut off, which was the burial ground for all the Jewish communities of Yerushalayim, and there was nowhere to bury anyone. And during the War of Independence, it lasted well over a year, people passed away. Uh, people got old and sick and died, just like they do during any other time. And there was nowhere to bury them. So there's like these um, impromptu, uh, um, temporary cemeteries that cropped up around Yerushalayim. And one of them, Dr. Valach uh, allocated space at the edge of the property of the old Shari Tzedek building. And that's how that's how uh, Rabbi Yisusi who passed away during that time and was in Shari Tzedek, was very close with Dr. Valach. That's how he came to be buried there. But after the 1948 war, it wasn't used. So how is his son, Rabbi Yisrael Maisha, who was later also the the Gaivid of the Edecharedis, the head of the Bezdin of the Edecharedis. How did he come to be buried next to him if he passed away in 2003? It's because they very much wanted to bury him next to his father, and it was very important and very symbolic. And even though there were no burials in this obsolete cemetery in 2003, they made a special exception in his case, and the the son is able to be buried next to the father. So he... Rabbi has been somewhat deliberately uh, forgotten uh, by by both sides. Uh, we'll explain, explain exactly what that means. Rabbi was uh, the rabbi of the Haredes and the head of Agudis Yisrael in the land of Israel during the last 15 years of his life. Before that, he was grew up in Hungary. He was the Rav in Galante. He was the Rav in Chist. Um, and uh, a very, very long and illustrious career in rabbinical leadership as a Rosh Hashiva as well as a Paisik and political leader. He was his in everything is he had an initiative um, and what to say about everything. So when he was during the tenure that he served as the rabbi in Yerushalayim um, of the Edecharedis, so the Agudis Israel and the Edecharedis were together. And he had um, played a major part in the fact that they that the two organizations separated and ultimately, the Eid Haredis considered him too moderate. I mean, the Eid Haredis was dominated by the spirit of the Satmarav, even though he didn't live in, in Israel afterwards, but he visited and he had an influence. He officially was the president of the Eid Haredis afterwards. And the, the two, Rav Dushinsky and the Satmarav, back in Hungary already, didn't see eye to eye on many, many issues. Um, so he was considered too moderate by his own group, uh, following his passing, and by the Agudis Yisrael, which he had been a dedicated member and leader of, and member of the Meatzik Daliyatayra for decades, and the leader of the Agudis Yisrael in the land of Israel for the 15 years that he was here, 
they also uh, forgot about him because they considered him to have betrayed the movement by allowing the split between the Eid Haredes and the Agoda to happen in 1945, which we'll get to. And because both sides kind of made this deliberate, uh, you know, covering over and forgetting about him, so he hasn't been properly put in his proper place of history and appreciated in history. There hasn't been much written about him, uh, unfortunately, so it's definitely doing justice to bring him back to the forefront. There's this excellent, excellent article in the Hagedolim book, which is an excellent book, but the profile on Rav Dushinsky over there was written by Dr. Menachem Karen Keretz, who's also an author of the uh, biography in the Satmarav. Um, he's, it's fantastic. The article is, is, it might be the best and one of the only good sources about Rav Dushinsky and his accomplishments, and especially his leadership, and I um, used that article as the primary source for most of what I'm going to speak about, although I used other articles and books uh, as well. There was a little bit of a biography once written about him covering the first half of his life, um, and uh, there's a few other stuff out there as well. Uh, the last 15 years of his life, Rebbe Sidushinsky was the spiritual leader of the Vad Ha'ir Ha'ashkenazi. That's what the organization was called, and eventually he oversaw its consolidation into its now known as the Eid Haredes, and and he he consolidated that and renamed it in a, in 1937, several years after his arrival in Yerushalayim. So he had grown up in Hungary. He had been a Oberland Ashkenaz Hungary of the school of the Chassam Seifer. He even learned in Preshburg Yeshiva by the Rebbe Sofer, the grandson of Chassam Seifer, the Shevet Seifer, um, for several years, and he was the. Uh, I'll get to his his bio soon. Now I'm just gonna uh, we'll get to the basic bio. Not soon. Towards the end, I'll I'll do a little bit of a basic bio. But I want to make the focus over here about his last 15 years, about his time in Yerushalayim. So, like I said, he served as a rabbi in in Hungary and Slovakia in between the two wars in Galant and Chist. And in 1933, he succeeds Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonnefeld. In fact, he comes a year and a half following Rebbe Yisuf Chaim Zonenfeld's passing. So for a year and a half, the position of Eid Haredes and Agudis Yisrael in Palestine is empty. Um, and he only arrives a year and a half later, even though his candidacy had already been proposed while Rebbe Chaim Zonenfeld was still alive. But it took quite a bit of time until they confirmed it and until he arrived. Um, so he comes a year and a half later, approximately. So... This position as the head of the Varhair Ashkenazi, which eventually becomes Eidacharedis, it also included his heading the Palestine branch of the Eretz Yisrael branch, essentially, of the Agudis Yisrael, which were under the same umbrella at the time. And he stood at the spiritual helm of his community. He led, uh, he founded, led, and delivered Shiurim in a yeshiva, which, like I said, he founded and nurtured and, and, and fundraised for and he delivered the shiurim there, so his yeshiva was a very full-time position. He was a rich yeshiva, and he had a very unique derech halima, a style of learning as well. He answered halachic questions from across the country and beyond. Many, many halachic queries. He was a renowned paisik. And unlike many other religious leaders of his day, he took a very proactive stance and initiative in the political realm as well. He was very, very active in the public scene. Um, with the non-Jewish government, the governments in, in whatever country he lived in. He met often, when he was in Palestine, he met often with various representatives of the British mandatory government. Uh, he testified to committees of the British, 
the government and of the UN. He met with leaders of the Anglican Church. He met with the leaders of the various denominations of the Zionist movement, the secular leaders of the Zionist movement. He was outspoken. He was fearless. He expressed his beliefs and views on a myriad of issues affecting his community, which he held close responsibility for. And he took very real responsibility for his community. He was in many ways a true leader. His 15-year tenure saw sweeping changes take place within the Jewish world of the Holy Land and beyond. The Fifth Aliyah, following the Nazi rise to power in Germany, brought an influx of Jewish immigrants, both religious and secular, into the burgeoning Yishuv. Um, and the, there's this, uh, you know, very large amount of building, building cities and new neighborhoods, kibbutzim, factories, industry, yishuvim, farms, agriculture. There's this flourishing life uh, taking place with all this immigration and Jewish building in in the Holy Land. At the same time, 1936 is the the Great Arab Revolt breaks out against. Uh, it's a rise of Arab Palestinian nationalism against British colonial rule that lasts for three years until the British brutally suppress the revolt. And that brings the Peel Commission to see how to t- take care of the Great Arab Revolt. And eventually that leads to the, the British uh, colonial government issuing the White Paper, which blocks Jewish immigration to Palestine. And that's immediately followed by World War II and the Holocaust. And then the Holocaust and World War II is followed by the the upscaling the the uh, the Jewish resistance movement. Um, and then there in November 1947 is the UN vote on the partition of Palestine. And then shortly afterwards, in May 1948, is the founding of the State of Israel and the outbreak of war. And this is the 15 years that the Rebbeis Yudashinsky is the head of the Haredes and the Agudas Yisrael in the land of Israel. So it's a very, very crucial time, very tumultuous, and as a true leader, he has to react to all these changes and see how he's going to lead his community to what he feels is the best uh, place for it. So all of these factors alter the situation of the Jewish population uh, in general of the Yishuv and specifically of his community, which he led, and the positions which he held to an almost unrecognizable state from when he started out in his position. In other words, there's this drastic change over 15 years. It would actually be difficult to find another 15-year period in another community in modern Jewish history where a leader was faced with such drastic change. And therefore, I think it's a very amazing story and piece of history to see how Rev. Dushinsky reacted and led with the changing reality of his times. And that's why the fifteen last 15 years of his life are the most interesting, and I'm going to focus on that. And maybe, hopefully, at the end, I'll have time for a brief uh, biographical synopsis of the first uh, 60, 70 years of his life. Um, so, perhaps the most central lasting legacy of his leadership is the split in the religious community in Israel, which he oversaw and persists until this very day. In other words, it became a house divided. The religious community, well, there's the religious Zionist community, um, which that was another another split that took place. But what I'm referring to here is in the split in the um, religious community, the religious non-Zionist community, um, to a certain extent, the religious anti-Zionist community, um, which, uh, which split... And it's a split within the community which persists until this very day. So it's very important, not only as a historical curiosity and a good story, it's actually one of those episodes that are very relevant 
to understand contemporary Jewish life, contemporary Israeli Jewish life, especially regarding the religious community. So, from his days as rabbi in Galanta, and especially in Chist, uh, in between the two wars, Rav Dushinsky identified with the values and the organization of Agudas Yisrael. He was close um, with other members of the Agudas Yisrael, with the Agudas Yisrael leadership in Slovakia in the interwar period of Akiva Seifer, in Bratislava, formerly Preshburg, um, Reb Shmuel Ungar, uh, in Nitra. These were the heads of Agudas Yisrael in Slovakia. He attended the Knesia Gedailas, he was a member of the Mayetzes Gedele HaToyra, so Rav Dushinsky was completely involved in the organization of Agadis Yisrael. And his position in Yerushalayim, just like his predecessor, Rav Chaim Zonenfeld, included heading the branch of Agadis Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael, as did Rav Chaim Zonenfeld. So he was assuming that position as well. So yet, the from the beginning, yet the Eretz Yisrael branch of the Agudah, and to a lesser extent even in Slovakia and Hungary, was always very different from the mainstream Agudah Yisrael in Poland and Germany. Um, in Slovakia and Hungary, and for sure in the land of Israel, um, it was the Agudah branches were more extreme, more separatist, very much more separatist, more anti-Zionist, and this allowed that space, that 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 independence, so to speak, of the Aguda branch in the Holy Land allows the Eid Haredes and the Aguda to be the same organization in Palestine. Um, in Poland that would not have worked. Um, there's, there's this idea which comes from Hungary, comes from, comes from Rav Dushinsky's own world, which is the Hungarian separatist philosophy, Tailung, which the community separates from the mainstream community in Hungary is the case of the Neolog, which was a Hungarian variation of, I guess we can call it reform, or it's not exactly reform like in Germany or the United States, but it's it's uniquely Hungarian. It's a it's a non-orthodox uh, uh, um, a non-orthodox uh, denomination of Judaism. And the Orthodox communities who followed the students of the Chassam Seifer in the 1860s and 70s made this great separation from the mainstream uh, communities. And and but the Hungarian separatist philosophy, as the century progressed and into the 20th century, became a double separation. It's not enough just to separate from the neolog, from the secularists. It's also to separate from the Orthodox community if they're not Orthodox enough, if they're not extreme enough, if they're not separatist enough. So Hungarian separatist philosophy is really a double separation. And the British recognized the Jewish community in the land of Israel through the Vad Leumi, what was called the religious component of it, was called the Knesset Yisrael. And every Jew in Israel had to be a member. And what the Eid Haredes essentially was, was separating from Knesset Yisrael. And that was Reb Chaim Zonnefeld's, again, the Hungarian philosophy, is separating and the creating the Vado Ashkenazi, which was a new entity, and he got government recognition. The British recognized the right, just like the Hungarian government recognized the right in Hungary, the British recognized the right in Palestine for people who wished to not be members of the Knesset Yisrael, to submit a formal submission that they're separating from the Knesset Yisrael, they're resigning their membership, and they're members only of the Vad Ha'ir Ashkenazi. So in order to be a member of the Agudis Yisrael in the land of Israel, you had to resign in Palestine, concentrating the political entity for the time being, 
you had to resign from Knesset Yisrael and join the Vatari Ashkenazi. Otherwise, you'd not be considered a member of a good Yisrael, which had ramifications for elections, for voting, for funding, for institutions, for education, for all kinds of things. Good Yisrael was a powerful organization. So you could only be a member of a good Yisrael in in Palestine if you resigned your membership in Knesset Yisrael, uh, which was the mainstream Jewish community. So this is this is the situation that Rav Dushinsky becomes the head of. Another crucial point is that the Eid Haredis, and by extension, um, Agudis Yisrael, receive uh, British government recognition as a legal community entity, meaning in, which I mentioned, but I, what, I'm talk, what I mean just as an example, is that their own cautious organization, their own right to levy taxes, their own funding, their own educational institutions, and all of this is outside the Vad Lumi with the main, uh, a mainstream community. Autonomy, and especially in regards to education, which was the primary focus of Rav Dushinsky over the years, Jewish education and the educational institutions which he oversaw, this was the ultimate goal, was to be the autonomous. And, and, uh, and, uh, and this situation where the old Yishuv slash Hungarians of Yerushalayim controlled the Agudah, in, in the country it became untenable in the 20s and 30s. And the reason for that is, is because of immigration. The reality on the ground changes. And this is always an important reality of social history, is that leaders don't make the changes. The people make the changes. Uh, the pe- reality changes. Society changes. And leaders, good leaders, they react to those changes. They don't initiate them. That's a good golden rule. And I some need to have the tendency to emphasize it because it's not always... Uh, self-evident and understood. So the demographics change, and immigrants, simple, regular families and immigrants, and the reality of the social lives and religious lives that they lead, change the reality on the ground. The fourth fourth and fifth aliyot during the 1920s and 30s brings thousands of mainstream agudist members from Poland and Germany, and they arrive in Palestine, and they primarily settle in the new of places like Tel Aviv and Petach Tikva, even on religious farming settlements, and they're more moderate because they came from the Aguda in Poland and Germany. They would not tolerate the hegemony of the Yerushalayim extremist faction. So things eventually come to a head once the war broke out, and several heads of the world Agudas Yisrael arrive in the land of Israel as refugees, and it essentially, all of a sudden, Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim emerge as the center of the world Agudas Yisrael movement because Vienna and Warsaw no longer are relevant. So offshoots of the movement arise in the 1930s, Payale Agudas Yisrael, or even non-Aguda organizations, which are really the membership, the rank and file are all former Aguda members in Poland, but here they can't join the Aguda because they're not willing to resign from Knesset Yisrael. And the Ger Rebbe back in Poland and on his visits to Palestine during the 1920s and 30s, he supports them. These non-Aguda, Agudist organizations in Petach Tikva and Tel Aviv and these type of places which spring up in the areas of the new Yishuv. So there is this rumbling, there is this shaking up of the hegemony of the Yerushalayim faction who controls the Agudas Yisrael, with Rav Dushinsky as its head, in his capacity as head of both the Yedich Haredes and Agudas Yisrael. And he his attempts at fostering unity. He led all of the offshoots as well. He'd visit the, the Payale Agudas Yisrael kibbutzim. He even 
who took out advertisements in the Hungarian Jewish media to encourage Jews in Hungary, religious Jews, to move to the land of Israel, to settle on farming uh, religious kibbutzim or yishuvim. So he was he saw himself as the head of Agudis Yisrael in all its factions. Um, he was a very practical person, an incredibly practical person. He never engaged in the fundamental or religious or mystical or ideological opposition to secularism, nationalism, Zionism, which was so common of his contemporaries, most notably his adversary of many years, the Satmarov, with the three Shavuos, the three oaths, and, and he made it a, a messianic uh, anti-Zionist movement. Rav Dushinsky was never like that. He was very opposed to Zionism. He signed on, on back in Europe, in, in Galant, in Chis, he signed on, 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 on these proclamations against it, and he combated it, and he had, his, he had his positions very clear, but he was in a much more practical sense. Uh, what's practical? What it makes sense for? What, is the, what are the threats? How can I... How can I protect my community? How do I perceive the threat? And what needs to be done in order to carry out in a practical sense? Um, and his entire leadership career resonated as someone with two feet planted firmly on the ground. Very practical person who very responsibly weighed every response and opposition he did regarding its relevance for that given situation. To that end, he chose very often not to engage in opposition when he envisioned that his efforts would be futile. He simply ignored many issues. He only engaged in efforts when he thought that he could achieve practical results. Uh, for instance, a very interesting story, He in Yerushalayim, uh, there was Yerushalayim city elections. Again, these are overseen by the British government, and Yerushalayim has an overwhelming Arab majority at the time. So, what happens is, is that the Jewish community of Yerushalayim, secular, religious, Zionist, anti-Zionist, everyone decides to get together and create a Jewish ticket so to, in order to garner more power on the city, on the municipal elections of Yerushalayim in 1934 under the auspices of the British mandatory government. So Rav Dushinsky goes ahead and cooperates together um, with Rav Cook, And... Not only with Rav Cook, but he has his community run on the same ticket with the secular Zionist organizations, with the general Jewish party, together with the secular Zionists, the religious Zionists, and the Eid Haredes, and the Agudah. Everyone's running together in order to have the Jewish party gain as much seats as possible. Because um, so, he saw that, that practically that it, that's what made sense at that time. Um, now, this action garnered the harsh criticism of Rabbi Khanan Vasserman and Baranovich. He heard about it, and he wrote this very sharp letter. It was a private letter, and it was eventually leaked to the media. And uh, this is likely one of the only instances in history where an extreme Hungarian rabbi, head of the Eidah this was considered moderate relative to a Lithuanian, Litvish Rosh Yeshiva, who is considered in this instance the one who is more extreme. It was a very, very rare situation. Rebbe Khanan later apologized to Rav Dushinsky. Um, Rav Dushinsky later on testified at the Peel Commission, at the Woodhead Commission. Um, he met with the heads of the British government. With these, um, He presented the position of Agudis Yisrael there. He attended the Knesset Gedele of Agudis Yisrael in Marion by the 1937. He then embarked on a fascinating and successful project, usually overlooked, 
This Varhair Ashkenazi was composed of a loose collaboration with the remnants of some of the pre-World War I old Yishuv Kailalim, primarily the Shemer Hechaimis Kail of the Hungarian Oberland community. There was also a Hasidic Bezdin and a Prushim non-Hasidic Bezdin. So it was this kind of like composite, loose uh, composite of these different communities of the remnants of the old Yishuv. So what Rav Dushinsky does in 1937, already envisioning a future split with the Agudis Yisrael, because he saw the cracks that appeared on the horizon, so he, which he headed along with Ramesh Blau at the same time. So due to the influx of all these moderate elements, which I mentioned before, from Poland and Germany in the 1930s, he decides that the first thing we need to do is to close ranks within the old Yishuv and to consolidate these disparate groups into one Bezdin and political organization, which was renamed the Eid Haredes. So this was a major step in unity within the conservative camp. But on the other hand, it was a major step on the way to splitting the religious community into the moderate Agudists and the extreme old Yishuv Yerushalmis. So um, the Agudist Yisrael is a little bit wary of what Rav Dushinsky's position is at this point, so they bring in a Litfish rabbi to to counterbalance the influence of Rav Dushinsky. They bring in Rav Zelov Ruvain Bengis. Uh, world Aguda leaders bring him in to the Eid Haredes in 1937 to mitigate Rav Dushinsky's influence, who at this point was seen by the World Aguda leaders as, as, a, as a little bit too extreme for the direction which the Aguda was headed. In July 1938, the Vadla Umi decided to go on a fundraising campaign called Kofer Hayishuv, which was to raise funds for Jewish self-defense and protection, which had gotten obviously much worse lately as security issues were much worse as a result of the ongoing Great Arab Revolt. So the Agudis Yisrael decided to join the collection campaign with the secular Zionist Vad Lumi, which, which was looked at with askance by many in the Eid Haredes camp. In February 1939, the Agudis Yisrael joined with the Jewish agency Oh no! At the roundtable talks hosted by the gov- by the British government in London, these two events were the last straw for a group of Yerushalmi, um, um, uh, an element of the of the of the Yerushalmi old Yishuv members of the Eid Haredes, and they resigned from the Agudas Yisrael, and they formed a new organization that they called Hachaim, which was named for Chaim Zanafel. The crucial point for the purposes of our discussion is that they received the support of Rav Dushinsky for this split. And this group later renamed themselves Neture Karta. As the war begins, the Aguda leaders shifted the Eretz Yisrael Aguda away from the old Yishuv and towards the new uh, Yishuv and the majority, as it had been in Poland and Germany, a more moderate community, the majority of the community by now. Yet as a result of the war, everyone was compromising their positions because of the reality of what was going on with World War II and the Holocaust. Rav Dushinsky, together with Rav Herzog from the Rabbanut, petitioned the British to grant more immigration certificates for Jews to escape Europe. Rav Dushinsky received war updates from the senior British military officer in Palestine, General Philip Neem, and he led an Agoda delegation to the British High Commissioner to help save Polish Jewry. But then something crucial happened. Um, something critical occurred, which forever would alter the relationship that Rav Dushinsky would have with the other Torah leaders of the Agudah Sisrael, and it would set the stage for the final split between the Agudah and the Eid Haredes. The Gerar Rebbe, the Imre Amis, and many others who were in, in Palestine at the time, they 
proclaimed a fast day together with the Rabbanut, the chief rabbinate, and a day of prayer for the victims of the Holocaust and for Polish Jewry at the end of 1942. Rav Dushinsky refused to join this day of fast and prayer because it was done together with the chief rabbinate. And, and he made his own fast day. And he even, he even had a minion daven for European Jewry every day, all day. It was designated as Rudyshinsky's minion that spent the next few years basically davening to save European Jewry. So he was very, very much involved in both spiritual and practical rescue work. He just didn't want to do it with everyone else because he didn't want to have this public fast day designated together with the chief rabbinate. For the Ger Rebbe and others, that was unforgivable. Um, they, this was like, uh, you know, they, 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 they had, you know, on the, you know, we're, we're all praying for the rescue of Polish Jewry. We're making a joint fast day together, and this is the time that you choose to not participate. This is the time that you choose to make us a, a statement about who's participating. Uh, they felt that that was, you know, the final split now seemed to only be a matter of time. Shortly afterwards, the Var Yeshivas was formed, and Rav Herzog was a member, so Rav Dushinsky refused to have his yeshiva join, and he formed his own organization called Ichud HaYeshivas, which were the yeshivas of the old yeshiv. In 1945, Rav Meishe Blau was abroad, and when the internal elections for the Eid Haredes were held for the leadership of the Eid Haredes, they used... Meisha Blau's absence, and with the approval of Rav Dushinsky, for the Naturi Karta to be able to take over the Eid Haredes. So it was now run by the extreme faction, and they formally cut off all ties with the Agudas Yisrael. This is the final split, and, and Rav Dushinsky gave his tacit approval because he saw this as an expression of the Hungarian ideal of separation, even from orthodox moderate elements and therefore he did not see it as a negative light. We're cutting off from a good Yisrael because they are too moderate, and now we need to make a final and total and complete separation. So now that he's not cooperating with the Aguda, the Maritz Dushinsky still wanted to care for Holocaust orphans, so he had to. T- so he took the unbelievable step of turning directly to Aliyat Noar to Henrietta Zold, and he entered an agreement with her that they'd send children to his institutions and provide funding, provided that they be taught Hebrew and general studies and vocational subjects as well. Um, so that, that was an interesting partnership there. With the founding of the State of Israel, the the uh, Rav finally found himself in between the two worlds, worlds that had both, uh, you know, distanced themselves from both his positions and leaderships. And leadership. The Eid Haredes was is now led by the Naturi Karta, is way more extreme than Rav Dushinsky himself was, or the views that he espoused. They take to violence to protest the new state. Rav Dushinsky was vehemently opposed to violence and to protest, to public protest. He didn't see it as a practical measure. The Aguda now saw him as someone who had betrayed the movement, and they, in the meantime, integrated into the new state and the state's institutions to which Rav Dushinsky was opposed to doing so. So it was in that situation that he passed away on Erev Sukkot in 1948 in besieged Yerushalayim in the Shari Tzedek Hospital and buried in its courtyard, one of the greatest rabbinical leaders of modern times. He also had a yeshiva um, in, in Yerushalayim, which was uh, much smaller than the yeshiva he had back in Chist. In Chist, in Slovakia, it was pretty much the largest yeshiva in the entire Slovakia. It had nearly 400 students at its peak, and it was one of the most important and prestigious yeshivas in all of Slovakia that he 
oversaw in Chistan, he had a yeshiva in Galanta earlier also. His yeshiva in Yerushalayim had between 100 and 150 students, so it was about a quarter of the size. And it was also more modern, uh, surprisingly. He had students in his Yerushalayim yeshiva, many of them were clean-shaven, or didn't have payas. Uh, he had a more modern yeshiva, interestingly enough. Um, he was a renowned paisik, halacha, lots of modern issues, not always in a stringent fashion. Uh, he allowed the use of electricity on Shabbos, for instance, which was unlike the position of his contemporary, the Chazanish. And all of this, of course, is in the last 15 years of his life in Yerushalayim. He had a very lucrative rabbinic uh, rabbinic career, a sheshiva and teaching and leadership in Hungary and Slovakia for over 40 years before Yerushalayim, which is quite an interesting story as well. Um, he, he Just how he came to be appointed as successor to Reb Chaim Zanafeld at the helm of the Vat Ha'ir Ashkenazi and the Aguda branch in the Holy Land is a story, interesting story. Moshe Blau, who was the head, the one who ran it, ran the Aguda Sistral, he, he went on this trip while Rav Zunnenfeld was still alive to go seek out a successor in Europe. Um, he originally wanted Remendel Zak of Riga. Uh, he, 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 there's correspondence between Moshe Blau and, uh, and Moshe Blau and Rav Chaim Grzynski in Vilna to ask his advice, who he recommends to be, to, to succeed Rav Chaim Zonnefeld, and eventually the candidacy of Rav Dushinsky is proposed. He visits Yerushalayim, he meets with everyone, with Moshe Blay, with all the other people there, including Rav Zonnefeld himself, who passes away just a few days later, and Rav Dushinsky delivers the main hesped, so he's pretty much guaranteed the job, because it didn't work out with Rav Mendel Zak of Riga, uh, but then the candidacy of the Satmarov emerges, and um, and uh, and that that got a little sticky, and uh, until it was solidified, Rav Dushinsky's position. I also want to briefly mention the, of course, the the, the only son and successor of Rav Dushinsky uh, is Rabbi Yisrael Meishe Dushinsky. He had his long career, incredibly long career, as the Rosh Hashiva of Beisay Siftzvi, the yeshiva which was now named for his father, which became a central Yerushalmi yeshiva and branched out to other branches um, and became one of the primary communities of influence within the orbit of the Eid Haredes. And it's actually Rabbi Yisrael Maisha who actually creates the community around the yeshiva. And as Rabbi Yisrael Tzvidashinsky, over the course of his life, he had shifted one of the you know, sub-stories of Rav Dushinsky's uh, career is that he shifts from Oberland Ashkenaz to becoming more and more Hasidic as his life progresses. When he was in Chist, it was already much more Hasidic, and when he was in Yerushalayim in his later years, he was even more Hasidic, and he and and it's fully realized by his son Rabbi Yisrael Maisha, who becomes essentially a Hasidic court and a Hasidic community, and he he creates the community and he creates it around the yeshiva forms it into a Hasidic court, bringing it full circle from Oberland to Hasidus. But what's fascinating about it is that the conduit through which that happens, that journey from Oberland to Hasidus, is through the yeshiva. It becomes a yeshiva community. That's what I find so fascinating, and it's in the larger context of how the yeshiva and the education becomes the focal point of how to rebuild a community or how to even form or transform a community, and it's the center point, it's the building blocks from which the current-day Dushinsky community is formed. Rabbi Yisrael Maisha eventually succeeds into his father's position as the gaivet of the Eid Haredes. To the best of my knowledge, it's the only father and son to hold the position, 
Ironically, the Eidich Haredish, which is one of the most conservative, insular, traditional communities in the Jewish world, has the least dynastical and most democratic process of appointing its leadership, which is another story. So the fact that they even took Rabbi Yisrael Maisha as the guy of it is quite a testimony to his greatness, greatness and leadership qualities in his own right, as he's not just riding on his illustrious father's coattails. Um, he, um, so he's, uh, he, he had been managing his, his father's yeshiva and building the kehila and overseeing its transition from Oyberlan to Hungarian Hasidic court around the yeshiva. And then he emerges as a Paisik. He's appointed to the Haredis on the Bezd in 1968. And then he's appointed to second in command as the Rivid in 1989. And then with the passing of Rabbi Moshe Aryeh in 1996, he's elevated to the Gaivid, to the titular head of the Eidah Haredis, and he passes away at the age of 81 in 2003. And despite the fact that there was no burials in that little cemetery of the old Shariat Sedek building on Rehov Yafo for well over a half a century, um, they still buried him next to his father. It's basically the only new grave there. I remember his funeral, and of course I go to his uh, cemetery. So the, um, you know, it, it didn't get really to his, his, his basic uh, uh, biography. Maybe I'll just mentioned briefly. He's born in 1867. Um, he studies in the Pressburg Yeshiva by Reb Simcha Bunim Seifer, the Shevet Seifer. He later marries Shendel, the daughter of Reb Mordechai Yehuda Leib Winkler, the Levushe Mordechai, later the rabbi of Mad, one of the most important rabbis in Hungary. We go to Mad on trips to Hungary. It's right near Karastir. Um, he was married to her for nearly 30 years, and unfortunately they didn't have any children. And after she passed away, um, he he uh, was in his 50s already. He marries Esther Newhouse of Pressburg. She was a young widow in her 20s, and they had this one child, Rabbi Yisrael Moshe, who, as I mentioned, was uh, was his successor. Um, so he becomes the rabbi in Galanta in 1894. He's the, he was 27 years old, and he's the rabbi there for the next 27 years. And he opened the yeshiva there, um, and, uh, and that's when he starts to get well-known. Um, despite the fact that he was very opposed to the Zionist movement, he actually delivered a eulogy for Rabbi Yitzchak Yaakov Rhinus, the founder of Mizrahi, the rabbi in Lida, when he passed away in 1915, despite the ideological differences. This became one of Rav Dushinsky's hallmarks, and unlike many of his adversaries, unfortunately, is that though he was very quite extreme in some of his views, and he was outspoken, he was always respectful, never personal, he was very responsible, level-headed, um, Rab, one of his students in the Galanti Yeshiva was uh, Rabbi Dr. Leo Jung. He was a student at the Yeshiva in Galanta. And my esteemed colleague, Davi Safir, wrote an extensive article several months ago for Mishpacha magazine about Rabbi Dr. Leo Jung. And he graciously shared with me an excerpt from Rabbi Jung's memoirs regarding his time as a student of Rav Dushinsky in Galanta and the relationship he maintained with him later on in life. So I'm going to Quote from that uh, memoir of, of uh, Rabbi Jung, so you got a little bit of the feel of what it was like of Dushinsky in his younger years when he was still the rabbi in Galanta. So I'm quoting from um, Leo Jung's uh, memoir. Galanta was a small town consisting mainly of one long street, not far from Bratislava, then called Pressburg. There were two rabbis, one the head of the great yeshiva, Rabbi Yisitsi Dushinsky, the other, Rabbi Yemen Seidel, a cheerful saint. Contact between the two congregations was comradely, but not intimate. At the yeshiva, of Dushinsky started the morning shir with interpretations from a passage from Chumash, Chumash, and then 
Chayvis which he would spend the rest of the morning expounding on a page, page of Talmud. He paid special attention to every word of the classic commentary Rashi. We learned from him how to read with complete concentration every utterance of that sage and how to anticipate the problem later scholars broached by reading between the lines of Rashi's text. The Rav included the early commentaries in his lectures, but with amazing learning found proper answers to difficult textual problems and stray references in other parts of the Talmud. He eschewed artificial expositions and insisted on the student's appreciation of principle and precedent as the timeless method in the history of Jewish law. He was austere, almost hermit-like in his private life. At two o'clock in the morning, the light in his study was still shining, but at six o'clock, he was already for the morning services. Even in my youthfulness, I noticed the sad countenance of his wife. She had been granted no children, and often in the solitude of her disappointment, she could be found standing in the gate of her home, looking into a bleak future. Many years later, in 1933, I met the Rav, his second wife, and their only child, who had just then become bar mitzvah, in the port of Trieste. My wife and I had come back from Israel, and the rabbi and his family were leaving for the Holy Land. It was a great joy and privilege to take him aboard ship and to offer him some some slight service to make his journey more comfortable. In 1947, and during other trips to the Holy Land, I saw him at the head of the Hungarian Jewish community and of Yeshiva Beis Yosef Tzvi, inspiring hundreds of students from early age and beyond marriage. In his great library, I found many scholarly treasures. Nothing gave me more satisfaction than my effort at his request to prepare the appointment of his son, as his successor. He was intolerant of superficiality, self-advertisement, and every tendency towards compromise. He was understanding when nonconformity was due to faulty heredity, her, her, heredity or environment. When I broached the problem of scholars economically unprepared for the problem of life and family, I found him not only sympathetic, but in dynamic agreement. More than once did he guide some of the students of the yeshiva, unfit for the rabbinate or a teaching position, toward a vocation or trade that would enable them to learn, earn a living and to make a contribution to life in the Holy Land. That is the excerpt from Leo Jung's memoir. There's also the story of Rav Dushinsky in, in, in Chist, um, which is you know, in his disputes with the Minchas Elazer, the Munkat Shereba, and his disputes with the Satmarav. Rav Dushinsky was seen as a moderate. Um, he's this Ashkenaz Oberlander, member of Agudas Yisrael. And so that's also an interesting dynamic um, that we'll have to save for another time. Um, this is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.